cry of your people. This is, these are, this is our prayer, God, that you would fill us up with all of you, that we might be shaped completely, totally by you. But God, I, even as I sing this, I realize how I've been shaped by so many other things instead of you. That, I, that I've been shaped by culture. I've been shaped by, you know, even the way church was done for me growing up. I've been shaped by, you know, tough, traumatic events in life. I've been shaped by family. I've been shaped by genetics. I've been shaped by uh, all sorts of different things in our lives. And God, I know that somehow, some way, you're working in the midst of all of that in your sovereign power to shape us to be more like you. But Lord, our prayer today is that anything that's not of you in our lives, God, may, may you purify us of that. May you cleanse us of all the things that you never intended to be a part of us, that are the effects of living in a broken world, that are the effects of just sin and selfishness and pride within us. God, purify us of those things because we cannot do anything you tell us apart from you. Because Jesus, you say abide in you, but apart from you, we can do nothing. And if we believe that, Lord, then I don't want anything except you. But I know we're all in process. We're all in journey, God. And you are in your own sovereign way. <laughs> because you know us more than anybody else inside and out, you are working. And so, Lord, I, I just admit, whatever it is that you want to do in my life, whatever it is that you want to purify, that I need to confess or let go of today, um, show me. And I pray that you do the same in here. But don't just empty us, God. We want to be filled. We want that place to be, be now filled with a revelation of who we are in you, who you are. We want to be filled with your Spirit. Because you're worthy, Jesus, of a life, my whole life, just as you gave your whole life for me. And God, I know that's the prayer of so many in this room too. And so, Lord, come have your way among us. Move in our hearts and our lives. We open ourselves to you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat for now. <laughs> Man, good morning, everybody. It is such a privilege to be joining with you. I see a lot of men here who are at the men's retreat this weekend. Welcome back to you guys. I know a lot of the men are coming back second service um, as well, so we, would, we can't wait to have them back. But man, God did some powerful things among the men up in New Hampshire this weekend, so I thank God for that. Uh, all right, JJ, thank you, man. Um, and, and as we jump into today, you know, open God's Word, um, I want to tell you a story about one of the most influential Christian leaders of the last 300 years. A guy by the name of John Wesley. How many of you guys have heard the name John Wesley before? Okay, cool, good, most of you. Now, if you don't know, uh, John Wesley, along with George Whitfield and Massachusetts' own Jonathan Edwards, uh, were a part in the, in the 1930s and 40s 
Um, God used them to spark what was called the Great Awakening across Britain and the 13 American colonies. You know, countless people uh, gave their lives to Jesus across denominations, races, gender, social class. I mean, it, this revival changed the social fabric of the Western world. And Wesley himself was a man with just an all-consuming faith and a love for Jesus that was absolutely contagious. But that wasn't always who Wesley was. You know, when he was a younger man, he was ordained as a minister in the Anglican Church. He was highly knowledgeable, de- devout, disciplined, but he was, that, that fiery faith was missing in him. And then in 1736, he boarded a ship headed from England to Savannah, Georgia, to become a minister there. And while on that ship, he met a group of German Christians called the Moravians. And the Moravians were completely different from any other Christians he'd ever known before. And in his journal, he notes this about them. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof. By performing these servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay. And if they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouths." At one point, he said that the, a, a big storm blew on the ocean and snapped the sail of their ship in half. Everyone was screaming. I think Wesley was too, though he didn't admit it. Except for the Moravians, who through all of that would sing hymns calmly in the midst of the chaos. And it was after that that, that he watched the humble, servant-hearted, Jesus-like Moravians that Wesley realized, man, something's missing in me. I do a lot of talk and I know a lot of stuff, but man, there's a fiery faith that I don't have that they do. And that set Wesley on a course that in time God imparted a living faith within him that no one could could ever snuff out. And then God used that faith he placed in Wesley to then spark the great awakening across Great Britain and the U.S. colonies. And you know what's amazing? That because of that great awakening in the 1730s, 40s, that paved the way for the second great awakening that happened in the early 1800s. And this church was planted out of the second great awakening in 1817. Well, you got to ask, where would we be if it wasn't for John Wesley? But even more, where would we be if it wasn't for the humble, servant-hearted, Jesus-like sincerity of the Moravians on that lonely ship? I don't think I can ever get over how God can use a group of people dedicated to being like Jesus. And with that, We're going to continue our series called Kingdom Come. But we're asking, what did Jesus intend for the group of people who crown him as king over them? Who do we become? How are we to treat each other? And when Jesus is king, who is the church to then be 
become? What is to distinguish us or mark us out in the midst of this world? And man, these questions are so important to me because I love the church. I love this church. I love the church in North America. I love the global church. And the reason why I've given my life to it is because I want to see the church of Jesus be all that he wants it to be. But looking at the church across our nation, do we look like our king or do we look more like our world? Who are we becoming? And what does he call us to look like? And so we're going to look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This is the beginning of that famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, when we're looking at a section called the Beatitudes. And no doubt, I know these words are going to be at least familiar to most of you in this room. But for Jesus, these words for him are a kingdom manifesto. They're a declaration of what he intends his kingdom people to be like. And if we understand it that way, how might we hear some familiar words with fresh ears? So we're on page 785 in the Blue Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, take one of these with you. It's our gift to you. But we're going to be starting looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus' kingdom Manifesto. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, as we open your word today, man, we, I ask that you give us the grace to be able to see this with fresh eyes. That even if these words are familiar to us or we've heard them before, God, I pray that you allow us to hear this with ears that are open and hearts (laughs) that just say, man, come do whatever you want in us. Lord, because as I read these, man, some of these things are overwhelming to me. I'm not even sure how much my life looks like it. But I pray that you would show us, lead us by your Spirit and give us faith and hope to believe that you are doing this work in us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes. And what happens to a group of people who are committed to this prayer being true among them? Right? This is our desire as a church, right? 
Maybe, right? Yeah. The, 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 I, I, I think Pastor David said at the men's retreat yesterday, let's get a little Pentecostal. Let's talk back here, all right? What, that is our desire, that we want God's kingdom, his will, his kingship to be an action among us, right? Yes. And if that is our king, then who are we to be together as his people in this world? See, God always intended his people, today called the church, to be a colony of heaven in the world. Now, before we unpack Matthew 5, I actually want to rewind in timeline of human history about 1,500 years to this point right when God uses a man named Moses to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, they, they hike through the desert of Sinai for three months, and then they end up at the base of this mountain called Sinai. And there God says, I got something, Moses, that you need to say to your people, and it's this. That although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy or set apart nation. He says, God, it's like, I'm your king. And if I'm your king, you're to look like me. You're going to be set apart different from the rest of the world. And then in chapter 20, just the next chapter later, God gives Moses his law on Mount Sinai. So he just said, I'm setting you guys apart to be like me. And now I'm giving you my law, which will guide you to know how to be set apart from the world. So you are to be in the world, but you're to mirror who I am, God says, for the world. You guys tracking with me? But what became the problem for Israel? They didn't. They couldn't obey what God said. I mean, they loved the blessings of God. They loved what God could do for them. But at the end of the day, when God's will and his law conflicted with what they wanted, they follow after what they felt was right instead of following God. And eventually in time, they even just say it straight out. They said, listen, God, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we, don't, we want an earthly king over us. Why? Because we want to be like the other nations. We don't want to be set apart and different. We want to be like the rest. We don't want you to be our king. We want an earthly king. All right, so that's that story. Let's get it back to Matthew where we are today. Because Jesus arrives declaring God's kingdom had come. And you see, Jesus in this point is now showing himself to be the new Moses. But he's different from Moses because he's also the perfect king. But his kingdom announcement came with this command to repent. What does repent mean? You guys remember, to change, to be set apart from the world. That Christ's kingdom wasn't going to be like the kingdoms of this world, but it was going to be a kingdom in it for the sake of this world. And then shortly after that, after he laid that out for them, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, for teachers in that day, sitting down was a posture of authority. But why did he go up on a mountain? Moses received God's law on Mount Sinai. And on this mountain, Jesus will give us the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew is showing us all of this 
on purpose. Because it is with Jesus' sermon that he says things like this, I have not come to abolish the law or prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill means to satisfy the original true purpose for it. What was that purpose? That we may be his kingdom people on earth. You guys tracking with me still? This is super important. Because now we see that Jesus, the better Moses, taught us who his kingdom people are to be and what they do. That the Beatitudes, we're seeing blessed are the poor and the meek and the merciful, aren't talking about different groups of people, as if you got the merciful over here and the, and the poor in spirit over here. But they're talking about qualities of one group of people, God's kingdom people. And they're not describing like, like the Christian specialists in the world, as if those who do these things are like the Navy SEAL level Christians, right? That's not what we're talking about. He's saying, no, no, these are the qualities that are to describe all Christian followers. And clearly, clearly by what kind, the kind of qualities Jesus points out, he's saying the things that my kingdom celebrates, he says, are not the things that this world celebrates. I'll explain, I'll, I'll get into each of these in just a moment. But at first take, poor in spirit, mourners, meek, merciful, it's almost like Jesus is trying to find words that the world's like, huh? The world says, says, you know, blessed are the strong for they win championships. Right? It says, blessed are the charismatic for they're going to have a million followers on Instagram. But Jesus' kingdom clearly values other qualities. Why? Why? Because the Beatitudes are a description of who Jesus, our King, is. He is the one who mourned over the brokenness of this world. So he became poor. And he entered our world in the meekness of human flesh. And though we were at enmity with our Creator, and like the Israelites sought to serve ourselves, the pure Son of God hungered and thirsted for all of us to be made right with God. And even when we persecuted and reviled Him, He embodied the divine mercy by, by dying on a cross to make peace between us and God. That's the gospel according to the Beatitudes. And that's who our God is. And that when Moses gave us God's law, our King Jesus fulfilled God's law on our behalf. That all of us have failed to live up to that holy, set-apart standard of God's law. That we have rebelled against our Creator and our King. That's called treason. And if that's who we were, like justice demands that we be condemned to death. But God said, no, I, no. I want you to be part of my kingdom. And I want to call you my children. And so the pure son of God paid the just penalty with his life. And that is all 100% pure grace. And in turn, all who trust in him, 
all who believe in what he has done. He says, you are forgiven. And not only forgiven, but then you are given God's spirit to dwell within you, empower you, so that he might do his work in you so that the qualities of Jesus begin to exude from your life. Isn't he good? That's our God. That's our God. And if this reality is the cornerstone of who we are, then what qualities should begin to distinguish us? And as his church, we honor Jesus as our Lord. He's it. He's our king. So what should characterize Christ's kingdom people? Well, since Jesus isn't like any other king, man, his people won't be like other kingdoms. Right? We should expect that. And as I quickly unpack each of these, notice how the, even the order that Jesus shares them in is important because they really build on one another, one at a time. It almost like the order describes the process of growth that we go through as followers of Jesus. And the first, let's dig in. First, the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy without God. If there is no God at work in our lives, do we still assume that we are rich in goodness? The poor in spirit would say, no, because any goodness in me is from him. The world says we are rich in goodness as it compares itself to, to bad people. <laughs> the poor in spirit compare themselves to the goodness of Jesus. The world determines and creates its own religion and spirituality to justify itself. But the poor realize, how can I stand up to the glory of God? The poor in spirit are the ones who reach the end of themselves. Realize they cannot save themselves. And their only hope is in the mercy of God. And Jesus says, if that's you, if you understand that's where you are, he says, then you're blessed. Because that's the very doorway to the kingdom of heaven. But second, as we see the reality of our sin, both in ourselves and others, it causes us to mourn. You know, how do we react when we encounter sin? You know, you know, the world may laugh. The religious people might judge. But God's kingdom people grieve. Because that's who Jesus is. Jesus grieved over sin so much that he gave his own life for it. And if we are people who love God and love others, then man, it's going to, we're going to mourn when we see anything that separates us from him. But Jesus says, man, if that's you, if you are one who mourns, you are blessed. Because the comfort of God's grace is there for you. And when we have a true view of ourselves, sin and God's grace, we become meek. While the world celebrates the loud, the charismatic, and the strong, Jesus celebrates the gentle, the humble, the meek. But let me set this straight. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under the control of humility. 
You see, the meek are those who channel their strength and their energy and their resources to gently serve others. And for that reason, Jesus says, man, I can trust you to inherit the earth. (laughs) But kingdom people don't only grieve over sin, but they also hunger, crave God's righteousness. And to hunger and thirst for righteousness means that we crave for others, one, to be made right with God. But righteousness also means that we, too, want to take on the character of God. But also, three, there's such things as social righteousness that you see the Old Testament prophets crying out because they realize that the world is not right. They want to see God's kingship in action in our society. And that as Christians, man, we crave to not just be emptied of sin, but to be filled with the very righteousness of God. And if that's our desire, Christ's promise, you will be satisfied because my kingdom is coming to make all things right again. And if we crave to be made right, then we work to show mercy for those in need. When we were impoverished in spirit, Christ showed us mercy instead of judgment. And if we are followers of him, we become extensions of his mercy, welcoming in the tax collector and the prostitute, the poor and the sick, the lame and the marginalized, that the kingdom of heaven is open to all who see their need for him. And if we truly are poor in spirit, we realize, man, if if God can welcome me into his kingdom, man, everybody must be welcome. And as those who crave righteousness, we become less concerned about how pretty we are on the outside as much as pure on the inside. That instead of being obsessed with how people view us as God's people, we start to care a lot more about what Christ is doing in us. That we want to be pure in heart. Another way to say pure in heart is utterly sincere or allergic to hypocrisy. You know, or we could say singularly focused. Because if we're singularly focused in this world and not, not, not distracted by the lesser things around us, we know what? We're going to see God, he says. We're going to notice where he's at work in and around us, right? And, as we, and I'm going to combine the last two Beatitudes in one statement. The kingdom people work for peace even when people refuse to live at peace with us. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. But peacemaking doesn't mean pacifying or appeasing. And if we want purity in heart, peacemaking doesn't mean seeking unity at the cost of purity. But it does mean that as as God's people, Paul even said, as far as it depends on you, we live at peace with everyone. That peacemakers refuse to accept prejudice within themselves. They want to listen to others instead of just trying to be heard. And they work to bring God's people together instead of following the polarizing viewpoints of the day that are seeking to rip them apart. After all, Paul said that if we're ambassadors of the kingdom, then we've been given the work of reconciliation Bringing people together. And peacemakers are called children of God because that's what our daddy does. Right? 
But we recognize that no matter how hard we may work for peace, some will refuse to live at peace with us. And like Jesus, some may insult, revile, slander us because we've chosen to be like him. But our response, church, is not to retaliate, to sulk in self-pity, to grin and bear it, or pretend like we like it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, no, by faith. I'm not telling you you need to feel happy, but I'm telling you that at your core, you can still have joy because you know that there's a reward waiting for you in heaven. And if you are representing Jesus, and if people are mistreating you because of Jesus, man, that is often authenticates the fact that you belong to Jesus. It doesn't mean that's how you earn Jesus. Let me be clear about that. But it's often evidence that he is truly at work within us. And if I could summarize all of these into one beatitude, it's this. Blessed are those who embody the way of King Jesus, for they will experience his kingdom come among them. All right, Kirk, man, that's, that sounds great and all. But, but, but seriously, <laughs> I mean, like, my head's spinning just trying to make sense of what you, all that you just said, much less like you actually want me to be meek, merciful, peacemaker, all that kind of stuff. Man, like, I'm sorry, that's not me. I would love to be a part of a church like that. That sounds fantastic, but that's simply not me. Anybody else kind of feel that way as we're reading through that list? All right, I'm the only honest person in here. That's how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. And I, I, I was like, oh my goodness. This whole week, I was like thinking about all the ways I'm not these things. But remember, we cannot become like Jesus with our strength, but in recognizing our weakness. Before words like meek, merciful, or peacemaker come out of Jesus' mouth, the first thing he said is poor in spirit. But man, this week, <laughs> I, I noticed every time I was impatient with my kids instead of being meek. Man, I noticed every time I held a grudge against somebody instead of being merciful. I noticed all the times that I was hungering and thirsting for comfort on my couch in front of the TV instead of righteousness. And I started thinking, man, following Jesus is hard. It's hard. But when we realize how far short we fall and how we are not like Jesus, what do we do with that? Do we say, man, forget it. Like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, and like other people, we'll save all these things for the super Christians. Or do we say, you know what, compared to those people, I'm pretty good. All right, like, just give me a break. Or in that moment, do we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I got nothing. You're my only hope. Teach me. Purify me. Give me your heart. Make me like you. Because like Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? Because that's where we begin. That's where the church begins. Man, I love the church. I do. 
But sometimes I do get discouraged because I ask, like, like, does the church in America really look like Jesus? If I'm honest, these past few years, man, like I keep seeing on the news another high-profile Christian leader who has some sort of national scandal have to resign and step down. I'm like, God, what's going on? What's going on? And I ask, like, God, do we, do we actually mourn over sin or do we just judge the sinner or laugh at it? God, would, would our neighbors describe us as merciful and meek in how we engage with politics or do we just look to win? God, do we just sweep issues under the rug or do we actually want to make peace? God, how do we treat people who, who mistreat us, offend us, or revile us? And before I start looking at anybody else, God's like, oh, how about you, Kirk? And I've thought about it. And as I have, I realize every time we as the church do not look like Jesus, it's evidence that we're trying to be the church without him. That we have not recognized our own poverty of spirit, our dire need for him. But what makes the church a conduit of God's change in the world is not our marvelous intellect or our talent or our money. What makes us the church that creates change in the world is because we recognize that we were sinners and Christ rescued us. And that it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives within us. And the reason why Jesus says we're blessed, 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 blessed is because if we're living out these things, this is the evidence that Christ is with us, in us, and working through us. So blessed are those who embody the way of King Jesus, for they will experience his kingdom come among them. And man, listen, I've had my days, especially as a younger Christian, when I got discouraged and critical, because I'm like, man, the church in America doesn't look like Jesus. And I love to point my fingers at other people. But then God in his grace began to put people in my life who looked like him and revealed to me the gap between me and Jesus. <laughs> you could call these people my Moravians. That their example revived a fresh faith in me. And you know, it's odd because most of the people who have influenced my faith have not been the people who, who have, I don't know, all the answers to the Bible or those with the flowery prayers. It's not. Most of the people who've had the most to me are people like my parents. I think about my parents who had never had a flashy faith. But the number of times I've seen them pray or sing with tears in their eyes showed me God's real. The amount of times I got up in the morning and I saw my mom with her Bible open well before I got up. And all of a sudden she just wants to talk about Jesus with me. Not because she has to, but because she wants to. I think about my Sunday school teachers, my youth leaders, those who, who even when we made fun of them and gave them a hard time, they kept loving us anyway. And they didn't need to know all the answers, but man, they loved us. I think about my in-laws who I've watched fast and pray multiple times in their lives because they just crave to see the righteousness of God revealed in their day. I thought about Marion Paduet that we just talked about a moment ago who is a man who looks to see where there is brokenness and he seeks to move there to bring peace. 
and I've thought about many of you. Who many of you who I've watched, even when your family doesn't treat you well, even when friends make fun of you, with a pure heart, a single focus, you keep showing up, you keep following Jesus, and you keep going his way. That is the evidence that Christ is at work in you and me and all of us. And when I see all of that, I'm like, yes, the kingdom has come. And it is coming. And my question to you is, who are your Moravians? <laughs> who are those people in your life that just embody the, these beatitudes that have reminded you and sparked your faith in a fresh way? Let's thank God for them. Let's find ways to encourage them. But also, my challenge to us before I close, as a church, Let's commit daily to begin praying that the Beatitudes become a reality in our lives and in the life of this church. Can we do that? That we open, just, let's start with this week. Every day this week, open to Matthew 5. Or if you got it memorized, just go through it in your head and begin to pray. Say, God, may I be poor in spirit. May I be more who mourns. And God, May Trinity be poor in spirit, be a church that learns to mourn over the sin in this world. Because what if, through that, God is going to then work in us to be someone else's Moravians? Blessed are those who embody the way of King Jesus, for they will experience his kingdom come among them. And so we're going to sing a final worship song together. I mean, we don't normally do this, but, but I, I, I feel like we should today. If you recognize, worship team, come on up. If you recognize that, man, like, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I want you during this song to come down front. And you can kneel, you can stand. But as just a way of saying, Lord, I have nothing apart from you. And I can only I can only be like you with you. It's a form, it's a way of expressing our surrendered hearts to him. So let's stand together. And as we prepare to respond, Holy Spirit, I pray that we would learn to be a church, grow to be a church the first is poor in spirit that recognizes our need for you. That we be people who mourn over sin, who are meek, gentle, humble, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, those who are merciful, those who want to be pure in heart, peacemakers in this world. And even when others do not live at peace with us, refuse to live at peace with us, God, may you teach us it's mind-boggling, but may you teach us with the eyes of faith how to look forward to the inheritance to come, that we might even have joy in the midst of trial. But Jesus, we can't be anything. We can't do any of this without you and your spirit. We are spiritually bankrupt without you. But I thank you that you did not leave us alone, that you came to us to save us, to fill us, with the riches of your spirit. In Jesus' name.